So we are in the book of Habakkuk today, as Corey just read for us, and Habakkuk might be one that we have a little bit of difficulty finding. Uh, if you are in the New Testament, just start turning to the left. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and right before Malachi, I always remember it, we have an H, a Z, an H, a Z. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and then get to Malachi after that. So we will be in the book of Habakkuk, and as you're turning there, as you're finding it, I just want to give a little bit of background information on this individual. So it's named after Habakkuk, uh, who was a prophet, one of those who speak on behalf of God to the people. And someone who shows who God is, what he's calling the people to do, what he is like, and to turn back to this God in the times that the people are turning away from him. But Habakkuk is a little bit different. We don't actually have him speaking on behalf of God in this book. There's a part in chapter 2 where he's told to write something down and tell that to the people, but most of Habakkuk's speaking is to God rather than from him. In fact, the first two books of, or the first two chapters of this book are a back and forth between the prophet and God. Habakkuk saying everything that he sees is wrong, as wrong in this world, and then God responding to it, and then they do that again. And there's certainly plenty that is wrong for Habakkuk to speak to. This book spans 66 years, which is pretty impressive considering that its entire length is 56 verses. But throughout these 66 years, we see Israel, Judah, God's people turn away from God. They were not following the way that he, they were told to follow him. And as a result of that, they were conquered and sent into exile. And then there is a prophecy that those who conquered them would be punished as well. There's this whole cycle of pain and punishment and suffering. There is plenty to see that is wrong in this world. Let's look again at that passage that we read earlier to see specifically what Habakkuk says as wrong. So look again at verses 2 through 4. It says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contentment arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. So what all do we see in, in these, these three verses here? What all do we see is, as Habakkuk saying is wrong in this world around them? What is he seeing as, as so contrary to God's nature? Well, first he says that, God, we don't hear from you. And these are God's people, the, the ones that he has set aside for himself to be his people, to, to know uh, what he's like, to follow after him, and they're not hearing from him. How are they to know how they are to live? It's saying that, that uh, God is not saving them, that there's, there's all this pain around them, there's all this sin around them, and God is seeming to not act on it. That there is evil that God seems to be overlooking, and God's people are not acting like God's people are supposed to. And the result of all of this is that there is no justice in this land, that things are going by and not being fixed, that things are not being made right. And Habakkuk says, why, God, are you allowing this to happen? 
Around the same time, there was another prophet, a man named Jeremiah, who gives us a little bit more of a specific list of things that were going wrong. Jeremiah talks about how there were uh, kings uh, over God's people who were relying on slave labor, that the religious leaders at the time were uh, misusing their authority and, and, and committing sexual sins, that the ruler would send out assassins to their enemies, that they would use might or threats or worse to get their way, that there was violence and oppression all around the land amidst God's people. This was not right. God, how can you allow this to happen? Habakkuk voices this complaint, and we see that The Bible never pretends things are better than they are. It never forces us to look at this world and pretend that things are going okay. And we see that throughout, but we see it in the book of Habakkuk, that he's never scolded for these words. God never says uh, that he shouldn't be asking these questions. God's response isn't, you just got to smile. You just got to pretend things are fine. You just got to grit and bear it. God doesn't say to Habakkuk, why why are you asking me this? Do you know who I am? No, God sees the pain as well. And that's the response that we get in the second part of chapter one. Essentially, God speaks back to Habakkuk and says, I see all that's going wrong. I do not miss any of this. I know what you see is wrong in the world. I see that too. I am not overlooking this. I will deal with the solution Habakkuk, you say that God's people are not acting like God's people, so I have a way to make things right. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're going to come in, and they're going to conquer, and they're going to send Israel into exile. Problem solved. Wait, what? Uh, Habakkuk cries out, God, all of this is wrong in this world. How uh, can you allow this? And now you're going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to make things right? They're worse than us. Look at uh, Habakkuk 1.13, which takes a page turn, and it's hard to turn pages. Uh, Habakkuk 1.13 says this, uh, who, uh, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God, how can you use people who are worse than us to, to fix this. There, there's an internal unfaithfulness to you, God, but now you're going to bring in this external threat? That doesn't make any sense. Habakkuk goes on to use this illustration of a fisherman, uh, and he's using this to stand for Babylon, for the Chaldeans. He says that these are people who worship idols. They worship themselves. They, they make sacrifices in vain. Why is it that the bad guys always seem to get the best things? And yet we get this, this beautiful ending. Habakkuk looks at all that is wrong in this world. He voices it to God. He is concerned about God's response. And yet this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. We're in this series that we're kicking off this Sunday, and we'll, we'll be in it throughout January that we're calling Beyond Blue. 
And we're doing this series because oftentimes we are like Habakkuk. We look out into this world and we see so much pain and hardship and brokenness. There's so much that causes us to be despondent, that fills us with hurts and sorrow and sadness. And we just have the same questions. Why, God? How long will this go on? How can you allow all this to happen? God, you, you are so good. How can you allow so much that is bad to go on around us? Because we are in a particular time of hurt. This, this time that we're in right now, it's, it's so full of reasons to be hurt. I think of those who are at loss or displacement because of the recent fires. This past Thursday was, was January 6th, the anniversary of our capital being stormed and came with that loss of life and the reminder of how infrequent it is that this, unation, this nation unites on anything. We have more and more people that we know who are getting sick. There's the great resignation. There's supply chain issues. There, there's so much in this time that we are in right now that, that fills us with hurt. But we're also in a season of hurt, We've just moved from the end of one year to the next, and it's a time that's so often full of melancholy as we look back on a year that has disappointment and regrets and goals not being reached, and, and we get to this time where we're all supposed to, to dream and, and have goals for this year, but it's, it's so hard to muster up that courage sometimes. We're just about to hit two whole years of being in a, a pandemic and while it's exhausting, we just want to get over it. We just want to get back to some sort of normalcy. It's hard when we have constant reminders of, of how much of an impact this virus has had on our livelihoods, on our comforts and entertainment, on, on friendships, on our politics, on this church. It's, it's so widespread. And so in this time that we're in, in this season that we're in, we are so often like Habakkuk saying, God, why? How long? Why aren't you doing anything? And what we want to see in this series is that the Bible never tells us to pretend otherwise. It never says, look at this world and just try to get your act together. It's never, you see these hardships going on, well, well just, just put on a happy face. That's not it at all. But the Bible goes beyond that. It, it looks at the hardship and brokenness of this world and normalizes it. It, it's, it shows that that is very much so a real thing. It never diminishes pain. It says that it's okay to not be okay. But the Bible goes further. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And that's why we have this series that we are calling Beyond blue, that there is so much that fills us with despondency, that makes us blue, that fills us with hurts and disappointments and sufferings. And we want to see how do we move through that together? How do we get beyond blue? But, but there's some dangers in doing a series like this. First, there are some who might uh, look at the pain and hardship uh, of of this, this world that we're in and, and ask, why are we doing this? Why do we want to focus on this? So we underestimate the impact of pain and suffering on us. 
And the first reason why we want to look at a series like this is, well, the Bible does. The Bible constantly speaks about the brokenness of this world, the, the hardship in it. It helps us to see that, that what we're suffering is not just about the suffering that we're going through. We always add to it. When we are going through some sort of pain, we, we add on other aspects of hurt to it. We add on isolation because no one else seems to understand what we're going through, and so we, we pull away. We add on to it disappointment. We have hopes that other people, that other things will make it right, but it doesn't happen. So now we're, we're hurt and we're disappointed. Pain is always a wound to our pride because we weren't able to stop it. We weren't able to prevent it. And the Bible helps us see that as we're suffering through something, as we are in pain, that it, we add on to it and it could take us to a place that we never thought we'd want to be at we never wanted to be at, and we never thought we'd end up there. That when we're going through hardship, when we're going through uh, aspects of despondency, that it impacts everything, including our beliefs about God. We saw this in the book of Hebrews uh, with uh, Israel, who were wandering in the wilderness. They were going through a time of hardship, which was never diminished. It was a time of hardship, but left unchecked, they ended up adding more and more to their thought process. They started with doubt, and that led to grumblings, which led to contempt, which led to their hearts being hardened, and they ended up in a place of unbelief. We don't want to underestimate looking at the pain and suffering in this world because the Bible helps us see that as we're experiencing those things, it impacts everything, including our beliefs about God. And we want to do this series because pain shows up so often in the Bible. It's like what we saw with Habakkuk. It's looking at this world that is broken and saying, yes, this world is broken. So we want to have a series where we honestly look at this world around us because that's what the Bible does. I think of people in the, the Bible like Elijah, who was faithfully following after God in a very difficult time. And in one more time that he had escaped Ahab and Jezebel retreating for his life, he was so worn down and beaten and despondent that he prayed to God for God to take his life. I think of Job, who says, it would be better for me not to have been born. I think of Jonah, who says, it would be better if I was dead. And Moses and Jeremiah and David all said the same things. So we don't want to underestimate the, the need for a series like this because the Bible always, or not always, but constantly talks about suffering that occurs in this broken world. Do you see, need more examples of suffering in the Bible? Don't worry, I've got them. Uh, look at the New Testament letters that we have. Just about every single one of them is written to a church that is facing persecution, that is told to hold on, to persevere despite everything around them falling apart. If we don't want to look at suffering and hardship and pain in this world, well, Paul's not going to be our friend. You look at the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms recorded in the Psalter. One-third of them. How many of them? One-third of them are Psalms of Lament whose words sound exactly like Habakkuk's. How long? Why? Why aren't you doing anything, God? Why are you inactive? Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you rescuing us? Why are you just uh, uh, resting? 
All of these questions that sound so scary to hear, but they are put in front of us to show us that this world is broken. And if we aren't people who are willing to look at pain and suffering in this world, well, Easter will not be a day of rejoicing for us. As the God of the universe came to this broken world, faced it headlong, experienced pain and suffering, dying the death that should have been ours so that we can live. We don't want to underestimate pain and sorrow and hurts in this world because the Bible constantly talks about them. It says that these are real things that we will experience them. And as we have this series where we look at some of these aspects of hurts, maybe we aren't in a time or a season of pain. Maybe we aren't impacted as much by all that's going on around us. Well, here is the unfortunate truth pain's coming, comes for all of us. And the best time to prepare for pain and hardship is when we aren't going through pain and hardship. And so that's why we have this series. But the other danger is the opposite of that. So not uh, underestimating the need for this series of not seeing why we would talk about pain and hardship, but overestimating those pains and hardships, of looking at all of the brokenness that the Bible talks about, all of the brokenness in this world around us, and just walking away thinking that there is no hope. That when we see all the hurts and sorrows and disappointments and regrets and pains, we look at all that and with no other response than despair. But that's not the solution either. The Bible constantly talks about how much of a broken world this is, not to dogpile on us when we are down, not to rub salt into the wounds, but to help prepare us so we aren't caught off guard. The Bible doesn't talk about the difficulty of this world to get us to give up, but so they could point us to hope. The Bible says this world can be awful at times, but that's not the end of the story. And that's why... The Bible, the church has been such a beacon of hope for thousands of years, for millions of people. And it's why it is baffling, just utterly baffling that we have it in our culture that to walk through those doors or the doors of any church that you have to have your act together. It it makes absolutely no sense that that we who are broken people of well have put it into our culture that you need to have the appearance of having it all put together in order to be here. It does not make any sense. It's like putting on makeup for a surgery. It's like putting on a tuxedo to, to get chemotherapy treatments. We who are all broken people ought to be the ones who are most willing to welcome in broken people. Because as we see how far away from God we were and what was taking place so that we could be brought near to him, we ought to come alongside those who are feeling broken and searching for hope as well. Because here's the thing, if this is not a place where it's okay to not be okay, then we don't understand the work of Jesus. To put that a different way, it is only when this is a place where it's okay to not be okay that we understand the work of Jesus. And the reason for that, when we see how far away from God we were 
And we, when we see what was done for us to be brought near to him, we act out of that truth and we care for those who are hurting and going through the exact same thing that we were before we had hope. Back to the point that I was actually supposed to be making of, of the danger of overestimating uh, the, the impact that pain has on us. The, the reason why this is dangerous is uh, so often when we come across uh, any sort of suffering or pain in our lives, we react with escape or just survive. So just try to endure it, just get, get through it, get to the next thing, uh, just block everything out so, so you can survive through it or to just run away from it. And these are, are dangerous things for us to do in the midst of pain because, first of all, they're, they're insufficient, we were meant for so much more than just escaping or for surviving, that we were meant to flourish. And, and if we're using these as coping mechanisms, well, we're living in, in a way worse spot than, than God has intended for us to. But the other reason why these are dangerous is so often when we run to these things as ways to endure the pain or hardship that we're going through to escape or, or just to survive, well, we're creating a pattern for how we will deal with pain going forward. It's like this. If I go out to a dirt field and I run water on it for a while, the water's going to run downhill. It's going to carve the land. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make a, a, a place where the water has been before. Now, if I go out there again sometime later and I run water in that exact same place, where's the water going to run this time? And save your chaos theory, Dr. Ian Malcolm. Uh, where's the water going to go if I do it again? the exact same place. It's going to follow that familiar path. It's going to go through that pattern that was carved out before. And that's what we do in pain. When we are going through something and we create a pattern of escaping or surviving or fighting or whatever it is, the next time pain comes, we're just going to do the same thing. And, and it, we're just so helpless to go through this pattern that we've been through before, that unless if we deal with it, we are not actually going through pain in a way that's beneficial for us, for our thriving, for our good, for our maintaining our relationship with God, as we just continue to go through that same pattern over and over and over again to the point of fatigue and giving up. And so we want to have this, this series where we look at the pains and sorrows and disappointments and hardships of this world, never denying that they are real because the Bible oft, always acknowledges that we go through these hard times, but how do we move through them in a way that is actually beneficial? How do we go through these things in a way that, that brings us closer to God? How do we go beyond blue? Before we leave, I do want to leave us with one little bit. How, how do we have hope in the midst of this? In each of the following weeks, we'll, we'll look at specific areas of hurt and, and see how we can have hope uh, and joy and peace even in the midst of these difficulties. But with us opening ourselves up to the pain of this world that we're in, if we don't have some sort of hope, I, I'm, I'm worried for us. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking, how do we have hope even in the midst of these difficulties that we go through? How do we remember all that God has done for us? In the first, and it's a real simple way, the first way that we have hope is doing exactly that. We remember. 
We remember God's goodness and faithfulness and authority. His goodness that what we see around us will not be tolerated. His faithfulness that what God has promised to do that he will actually do. His authority that he is able to do all that he seeks out to do as the creator and ruler of this world. And we have that call to remember. One of the most often used commands and instructions throughout Scripture is to remember. I think of Israel when they finally entered into the promised land. They were told to stack stones as a reminder so that they could remember all that God had done for them. Last week was a communion Sunday, and I always try to use the same wording of it. When we take the the wafer and the cup, I always say, do this in remembrance as a reminder. When Jesus left this world, he was talking with his disciples and he said, remember, I am with you always. We have these calls to remember. We have these needs for reminders because we are a forgetful people at the best of times, let alone when we are going through some difficulty, some hardship, some pain. In those moments, we act just out of instinct, of muscle memory. And so we need to remind ourselves of the goodness and faithfulness and authority of God at all times so when we most need to be reminded of them, we can more easily recall them. Paul Tripp, uh, an author, uh, said this. He said, Our hope is not found in understanding why God allowed suffering into our lives. We often think it is. If I just had the answers, but that isn't true. Hope is not found in the belief that somehow we will tough our way through it. Our hope is not found in doctors, lawyers, pastors. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that one. Uh, actually, I do. Uh, not found in me for sure. But family or friends either. Our hope is not found in our resilience or ingenuity. Our hope is not found in ideas or things. Though we may look to all of these for temporary help, Ultimately, our hope rests in the faithful and gracious presence of the Lord with us. That's why it's such an encouragement that Jesus says when he leaves this world, remember, I am with you always. We have a God who is so good and so faithful. He's so in control of all things that what we most need for hope is to remember him him with us. That, that quote from uh, Paul Tripp reminds us of another source of our hope. Our hope does not require things to be going okay. Our hope does not require everything to be aligning with what we, we wanted it to be. Our hope does not require circumstances to all be going perfectly. In fact, there is no reason for hope in those moments. Why do we need hope if things are well? But hope comes when things are most difficult. Uh, Another quote that I have from uh, Henry Nouwen, he says, Hope is not dependent on peace in the land, justice in the world, and success in business. Hope is willing to leave unanswered questions unanswered and unknown futures unknown. Hope makes you see God's guiding hand not only in the gentle and pleasant moments, but also in the shadows of disappointment and darkness. Because here's the thing, we are most overjoyed that our salvation rests in Jesus alone when we are experiencing pain. 
that when we see all that is coming outside of our control, that while we had no room in our schedule for pain or suffering, it has now taken our entire calendar over. That while we had plans that we had put in place now blowing up in our face, in pain we realize just how much is outside of our control. And so we find so much joy and hope in the fact that Jesus has paid it all. That we have no ability to control things. We have a God who is in control of all things. That we have no ability to save ourselves. We have a God who can and does save. That we have no idea of what to do or or where to go, but we have a God who knows all things. And it's in the pain that we are most overjoyed by the fact that Jesus has done it all for our salvation. When we are least in control, we are most grateful for the fact that God is. And I get it. When we are in the midst of pain, so many of these words just sound so hollow. That these words of hope just seem like empty words when we are right in it. It's too fresh. It still stings. There's, there's still too much that's raw to really hear the truth of these things. And that's why we want to have this series. That while we want to first see that the Bible looks at this world honestly and says, yes, it is broken, we cannot stay in that spot. That as we see God working in the midst of the good and the bad, as we see him who's controlling all circumstances, that his love is not stopped, that he has not left us, It's in the pain that we recognize that it's not okay to stay in that spot. We need to get beyond blue. Otherwise, we just add on to it. Otherwise, it impacts everything around us. Otherwise, it shapes even our beliefs about God, who has never left us, who has never forsaken us, who is with us in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, coming into this world as Jesus suffering for our sake. Habakkuk cries out to God, seeing all that is wrong with this world, saying, God, why don't you do anything about it? And he gets an answer from God, but he's incredulous that that would be his response. So he says, I will wait. I will listen to what you have to say. And then in chapter two, God responds again to this question of why is this all happening And this is a massive paraphrase, by the way, but God essentially says, it's because things are worse than you know. You look out and you see this world that's so broken and what you have to complain about, and those are very real complaints, but it's actually worse than even you realize. And I will not let this stand. Every injustice will be righted. Evil will not prevail good will be restored to this world that I have made to be good. And that those who do not live by faith, well, all that you see is bad, it will go even worse for them. But I will act, God promises to do. Habakkuk doesn't get the answers that I think he would have wanted. If this was given to me in my pain, I certainly would not be satisfied with these answers. In fact, it sounds like things are going to go worse that there's a promise that there will continue to be suffering. And yet Habakkuk can't have hope in the midst of that because he is reminded of the goodness and faithfulness and authority of this God. 
that even in the midst of suffering, that God is still working through it and that God will restore all things. And it's because of those truths that Habakkuk ends the entire book in this way. Chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive field, uh, the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What's the next word? Yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread in my high places. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you have not made this a place to where we just have to pretend. We have to walk in smiles all the time, that we can't acknowledge the hurt of this world, that we have to say that all things are good with you all the time, that this is a world that's broken, and you constantly acknowledge that through your word, through your living with us through your experiencing pain and suffering yourself. And so we are so grateful to not be left alone in it, to have a church that can come alongside and say, it is okay to not be okay. More importantly, to have people in our lives who do not allow us to stay there. But you've worked through others who help work through us. That you have not left us, that you are with us always. You are giving us the means to have hope even when everything is falling around, around, uh, falling apart around us. So while things might not be good on the surface, we are reminded that you are good always. So to you and you alone we pray. Amen.